Okay. Beautiful. Beautiful job, guys. And wonderful praises to the Lord as we come into a time where we open up God's Word and we hear Him speak to us from His Word and, Lord willing, through the preaching of His Word. So I invite you to turn for our, our scripture reading for our sermon this morning. We are going to be in the Old Testament for this Reformation Sunday, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 15. And speaking of singing or doing things in tongues, this morning I'm reading from a Reformation-era Bible, so it might feel like tongues. <laughs> this, uh, this is my tradition I started a few years ago, uh, and it is where on Reformation Sunday I love to preach a sermon from a Reformation-era Bible. And so I've done the Geneva Bible in the past, I have done... Uh, the Bible that was uh, influenced or mainly translated by William Tyndale, my favorite reformer, last year, I think, or year before. I can't remember exactly now. This year, our Reformation-era Bible is the granddaddy of them all, the King James Version. And so this morning, we, uh, it's not tongues. It is modern English, but it's, you know, it's old. Uh, but it still has that great majesty that the Reformation era brought to their English Bibles. And so I'm very happy to be preaching from the King James this morning. It's going to sound a little different than the ESV, but you should be able to follow along, follow along just fine. So this is our scripture this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 15. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. And it shall be, when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of good things which thou fillest not, and wells digged which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantedest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him, and thou shalt swear by his name. Ye shall, know, ye sh ye shall not go after other gods of the gods of the people which are round about you. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word today. 
Father, we pray that as we open up your word, as we break it open through preaching and expose the truth that's here and we proclaim it, that you would be merciful to our weakness, that you would open eyes and open hearts, enlighten the eyes of our hearts, not just to see truth, but to cherish it and to have eyes to see you today, to have hearts that are drawn to a deeper love and zeal and passion for your worship and your glory in all that we do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we come to the final sermon in our Reformation series on the five Solas, five Sundays in October, five solas, divine providence, wouldn't have it any other way. A Reformation series. And today we come to that fifth and final sola. We've seen sola scriptura. We've seen sola gratia. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola gratia, saved by grace alone. Sola fide, how are we made right with God? Only through faith, faith alone. Last week, Solus Christus, Christ alone, head of the church, the only mediator between God and man. And this week, we come to our final one, Soli Dio Gloria, to God alone be the glory, or glory to God alone. This sola is last because it is the linchpin that holds the five solas together. This is the link that binds all five of them together. This point, this sola, is the crown and culmination of the whole Reformation. This is what it was all for. This is what it's all about. This is where it was all headed. Glory to God alone. This point is, in some ways, the most important. But without the other four, we wouldn't have this one. And so you need all five. But this is the end goal, that all glory go to God. Now, this idea, glory to God alone, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone, what do we mean by glory to God How do you glorify or give glory to someone or to something? And here's the answer. We give glory to something in this context, the way we're using it in this context. We give glory to something through acts of worship in a sacred context or a sacred setting, a religious setting. We glorify something, we give glory to something through acts of worship. Actions that in themselves have the nature of worship in a religious or sacred context. And what are those acts of worship? It's praise. Now, we praise all sorts of things. We praise a great team in sports. We praise a a wonderful shot at the buzzer in basketball. We praise a great book or a wonderful friend or a delicious meal or a great experience. We praise all kinds of things by saying nice things about them and 
and sort of exalting them and building them up and celebrating them in some way. But we're not talking about little praises like that. We're talking about giving religious praise to something. High, high praise and exaltation and it's an esteem and wonder. Praise and honor and adoration and prayer and giving gifts like tithes and offerings. Rituals and ceremonies with religious reverence. That's what we're talking about. These are actions or acts of worship. And through the performance of these actions, the giving of praise, the giving of honor, giving adoration, offering prayer to someone or something, giving gifts, performing rituals and ceremonies and religious observance, these are our acts of worship. And through them, we give glory to someone or something. You glorify something by treating it as an object of holy devotion. An object of holy devotion. And you do that whether you mean to do it or not. Intention, what you think you're doing, does matter, but it's not ultimate. And the best example of this in the period of the Reformation is prayer. If you pray to someone, that is an act of worship. Because you're treating that thing or that someone as having the power to hear your prayer and do something about it. Otherwise, why are you asking them? And not just you, but what if a thousand people are praying to that one someone at the same time. Can they give their full attention to a thousand different people and hear their prayer? You're, you're beginning to ascribe to someone, if you're praying to someone other than God, you're beginning to ascribe to them divine power. That they can do things only God can do and that they can give answers only God can give. And the critical issue in the Reformation was praying to saints. Saints so-and-so, please bless me in this journey. Saint so-and-so, please keep me safe. Saint so-and-so, please help me sell my house. <laughs> I remember working at a bookstore, and we had little knickknacks, little religious knickknacks t- hidden in the corner. And for the, for the handful of, of uh, Roman Catholics who would come to the store, they had little rosaries and had little saint somebody, I don't know, a little figurine of a saint. And Catholics would come in and say, can I buy saint whoever, Stephen or something, I don't know. <laughs> Can I buy this? And I say, well, well, yeah, of course you can buy it. And, uh, and then they'd volunteer why. I didn't ask, but they would tell me why. And they'd say, I'm going to bury this in the backyard because I'm selling my house. I'm like, how's he going to help you if he's in, the, in, in a hole in the backyard? How's this little toy going to help you? <laughs> you know, so this isn't like stuff from the Middle Ages. I mean, it is in the Middle Ages, but it's with us today. I once went on eBay to see if I could buy an indulgence. From the Catholic Church. You know what an indulgence is? It's, it's getting forgiven for your sins for giving money to the church. You can still do that. Google, look it up. You can still do You can still buy forgiveness. Time off of purgatory. Okay? Not every Catholic believes this or does this, but I'm just talking about what, what's still out there in some ways and in some places. Okay? Now, when, what are you doing at that moment? I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I'm just saying, when you're praying to a saint... When you're asking a saint to do something for you, 
you're assuming that person in heaven has God-like abilities. It is an act of worship to pray to Mary or a saint. Whether you mean it to be or not, because you're treating that person as an object of holy devotion, a person or a thing, something you can pray to, something you can go to and trust in and hope in and ask for things like blessing and grace and favor and protection. And it can go to wild extremes. Soli Deo Gloria in the Reformation meant we do not pray to anybody but God, and we do not pray to God through anybody but Solus Christus, Christ alone. We don't go to God through anyone else or in anyone else's name. It is glory to God alone. And that meant prayer to God alone, worship to God alone, giving gifts to God alone in our tithes and offerings, honoring God and adoring God and reverencing God alone. He gets all of our holy devotion. He gets all of our acts of worship. Remember I said last week that each of the five solas answer a question. What question did this one answer? Soli Deo Gloria answers the question of true worship versus false worship. It answers the question by saying true worship consists of at least three parts. True worship is focused on three things, three focuses of true worship. And the first is is the God focus, a God focus. There is only one God, so he must be our only object of worship. God alone must be the sole recipient of our acts of worship, our holy devotion, our glory. All acts of worship are aimed and intended for him alone. If you lose the God-focused peace, you have false worship. Second focus, Bible focus. Christ is the only head of the church, and so he gets to tell us how we worship him. We don't get to say, Jesus, here's how we're going to do it, and you're going to like it. We don't worship Jesus or we don't go to God with our own imaginations and our own good intentions, however pure they might be. We don't invent what pleases God. We simply obey what God says pleases Him. And that's why it has to be a Bible focus because Christ is the head of the church and Christ tells us how to worship in His Word. He's the only head of the church, so we have to worship on His terms according to His Word alone, sola scriptura. The Bible isn't just our ultimate rule of faith. It's our ultimate rule of worship, too. And the last focus is gospel focus. God focus, Bible focus, gospel focus. Christ is not just the only head of the church. He's the only mediator of the church. And so all worship must be given in His name, through Him, based on Him, centered on Him alone as Savior. God focus. Bible focus, gospel focus. 
If we mess it up, if we introduce other objects of worship, we lose the God focus. We have corrupted our worship. If we stray from the scriptures that tell us how to worship, when we start thinking we, we can just invent our own good time to do on Sunday, and why wouldn't God like it because it's such a good idea or we're so spiritual or something or however we justify it. If we deviate from what God says... from the way God says we should worship. We've lost that Bible focus, that word focus, and we've corrupted our worship. And then the third, that gospel focus, if we start going to to God with with some other mediator through a saint or, or Mary or anybody else, we've just corrupted our worship. We've lost that gospel-centered, Christ-focused peace. We don't go to God through anybody but Him. We don't go in anybody else's name. We don't trust in anyone else's person or office or work. It's just through Christ. And, of course, the Holy Spirit's the one who is in us and with us to bring us to Christ and point us to God. The Spirit doesn't lead us to look at anybody else or to do anything else. Soli Deo Gloria means we have these three things to give all glory to God. These things protect true worship and define it as opposed to false worship. And when you put all this together, soli deo gloria means all worship must be God-centered, Bible-centered, and Jesus-mediated. God-centered, and then not Bible-centered, yes, but Bible-dictated not just Bible-based. Everybody's going to say, oh, it's Bible-based. It's based on the Bible. The, the, the general idea is in there somewhere. You know, there's, the, there's this uh, old little, I don't know, little song, little ditty that I learned a long time ago for people who are just Bible-based, but they don't understand what that means. And it goes like this. I don't know and I don't care, do-da, do-da. It's in the Bible, who knows where, oh, the do-da day. Bible-based, that's what that is. (laughs) We don't just want Bible-based. It's in the Bible somewhere, yeah, who knows where it is, I don't know, I don't care. No, Bible-dictated, chapter and verse worship. That's what we want, because we want to know it's in obedience to God. And unless there's a word that tells us that it pleases God, we don't actually know. We have no assurance that our worship is pleasing to God without a Bible verse or something in the Scriptures to tell us. God-centered, Bible-dictated, and then Jesus-mediated. It's got to be all three. All worship that deviates from any of these is false worship that God rejects. So our question for this sermon is, how important is true worship? How important is true worship? You know, John Calvin, during the Reformation, he gave us his studied opinion on this question in a document he wrote in 1544 that's called The Necessity of Reforming the Church. And Calvin says there's four areas or four, yeah, four areas in which the church needed to be reformed in his day. The top four places the church needed to be reformed. The first two he calls the soul of the Reformation, and the other two he calls the body of the Reformation. In other words, the the Reformation in its inner and its outer aspects. Calvin ranks these four in order of importance. So let's do a little countdown. If I asked you, send me an email and tell me what are the top four things 
that are the heart and soul of Reformation and of the church? What are the top four things? I wonder what you'd say. Calvin's answer might surprise you. This was not written in response to someone who was saying, it's these four things. And he's like, no, it's these four. Nope. This was not in response to an enemy. He was asked by his fellow reformers, can you be the one to write up a document that says this is what we're trying to do? And he said, sure. And he ranked these things in order. So let's do a little countdown. Number four, church government. The government of the church. Number three, the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Of course, the Catholic Church has seven. We have two They were very important. Baptism and the Lord's Supper being the two that are in Scripture. Those were very important, but it's only third on the list. Number two, most important, salvation. It's not number one. Can you believe that? The gospel, justification by faith, sola gratia, solus Christus, that's not number one. The gospel's not the number one thing. Calvin was very clear that without the gospel, the church has no foundation. It is the hinge on which everything turns, he said. It is the article upon which the church stands or falls. No gospel, no Christianity, no church. Got to have the gospel. It's of supreme importance except for one thing that Calvin said is the most important thing, the first thing we've got to fix in the Reformation. The great scourge on the church that needed to be reformed, he said, is that God is not worshipped according to his word. I wonder if that would make the top of your list. The most important thing is that God be worshipped according to his word. Calvin said the chief scourge of the Christian church was that God needed to be worshipped the way he demands to be worshipped, not with all this vain trifling and showmanship. The Reformation is necessary because God cares supremely about his due and proper worship and his due and proper glory. Worship matters because God's glory matters. Worship matters supremely because God's glory matters supremely. False worship brings the highest displeasure to God. Proper worship, Calvin said, is corrupted because we do not properly know Christ in his person, in his offices of prophet, priest, and king, in his work as our mediator and our only redeemer for our salvation. When we lose sight of Christ, we lose sight of the gospel. We've eclipsed the gospel. And when the gospel is wrong, inevitably our worship will be wrong. We'll corrupt the way we do the sacraments. We will corrupt the way we govern the church. Everything becomes unbiblical. It is a tidal wave, and it flows from what we do on a Lord's Day morning. When we mess up worship, it's because we mess up Christ and his gospel, and when we mess that up, everything else will fall. It's a house of cards. You can pull the little Jenga blocks out only so many times, and eventually it's going to collapse because you lose the foundation. This is why the Reformation was necessary and why I had to start with worship. And so true worship is of utmost importance. Calvin's masterpiece 
sets the agenda for the Reformed and Presbyterian wing of the Reformation, and it sets my agenda in this Reformation Day sermon. Calvin's way of framing the Reformation is based firmly on Scripture itself, as I want to point out to you in the few minutes we have remaining this morning. In this passage in Deuteronomy, Moses delivers God's Word to the people of Israel. God speaks the most fundamental and foundational revelation of all, of all Old Testament religion right here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. If someone were to ask you what's the most famous verse in the Bible, you'd probably say John 3.16. But if you ask a Jewish person that question, they don't have a New Testament, so the Bible is just what we call the Old Testament for them, and you say what is the most well-known and important verse in the Bible for Judaism, it's Deuteronomy 6, 4, right here in our text. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, or the Lord our God is one, is one. The Lord alone is our God. This is the most fundamental thing. No other gods, no other gods but Him. God tells His people in this passage what is most important to Him, and it's true worship. He also warns His people of the evils that follow when true worship is neglected. And He tells us how we can protect and preserve true worship in each generation today. So these are the three things I want to point out to you from our text. First is God's passion for His worship. The second is the scourge of false worship. And third is the culture of true worship. And what I want to impress upon you through this sermon today is this. Because due and proper worship is God's chief concern for His church, we must be diligent to practice and preserve true worship in every generation. So that's what I want to point out to you this morning. Let's look first at God's passion for His worship. In our text, it's verses 4 through 6. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. If you skip to verses 13 and following, it says, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear by his name. Ye shall not go after other gods of, of the gods of the people which are round about you. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you. Notice what we see in, in these verses. He says very clearly, I am your only God. Do not have another God. I will be supreme in your affections. The Lord our God is one. Love him with all your heart, all your soul, and all of your might. And keep his word deep in your heart. Do not forget him. Fear him, serve him, swear by his name, don't go after anybody else. He is a jealous God. Have no other gods. Look to no other as your creator, your redeemer, your provider than the one who delivered you from Egypt, he says. And the same applies to us. Do not look to another 
Do not ask another for blessing and favor. Do not ask another for divine protection, for grace and mercy to fulfill God's promises. Do not look for your needs to be met by any higher source. Yes, we ask others for help, but God is the one who is to be the one whose hand we seek for all blessing. Have no other God. Do not look to any other. And we also see here that he says we are to worship on his terms. Worship on his terms. We see this even clearer if we turn back to chapter 5 where we give the Ten Commandments. Have you noticed the first four commandments are all about worship? All about worship. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Do not have any other gods but me. Do not make any images. Don't take my name in vain. And remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's what God says. That the first four are all about true and proper worship. Have no images, no graven images. Do not bow down to them or serve them. Reverence his name alone. Do it on the Sabbath day, the Lord's day. Worship on his time and his schedule. God sets the terms. Why? Because he's passionate for his worship. He's the God who's jealous for his worship, he says. Jealous for his worship. Now, that word jealous can throw us off because jealousy with us is, sounds like a, a vice, not a virtue. But when we say that God is jealous for his glory and his worship, when God has a passion for his worship, that's what we mean. He is passionate and protective of his worship. He's passionate and protective of his worship. That's what, we, that's what he says in the text. Do not go after other gods, verse 14, the gods of the people around you, because the Lord your God is a jealous God among you. He is passionate for his own worship. And that takes us to the second point we see in our text. Not only is God passionate for his worship, but he warns us of a great scourge upon false worship. Look at verses 10 to 12. It says, And it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to give to you, and he goes through all these blessings. You're going to have these great and good cities that you didn't build, houses you didn't build, and wells that you didn't dig, and vineyards full of uh, olive trees that you didn't plant. You're going to eat. You're going to be full. When you come into the promised land and you get all that bounty from God, when he's lavished his blessing upon you, he says uh, in, verses, in verse 12, Then beware, lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Beware, he says. Beware. Do not forget the Lord. Verse 15, the Lord is a jealous God among you, so don't forget lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. God is passionate about his worship because he's passionate about his glory. And that means we are to have no other gods. We're to worship on his terms. We are to recognize his zeal and passion for his own worship. And we are not to forget that the scourge of false worship is deadly. 
Why? Because number one, it brings God's anger. Did you notice that in the text? Lest the Lord your God be angry with you. And it brings God's anger because he's jealous for his worship, because he's passionate and protective of his glory, of his worship. It brings his anger when we corrupt his true worship. And when we take worship here lightly and flippantly and just treat it as a vain thing, it's a great sin upon us. We invite the anger of the Lord when we just ho-hum through worship like it's nothing. God's passionate for his worship. And when we corrupt his worship, we invite his anger upon our own church. When we take worship lightly, it is not a light thing. When we take worship lightly, it is not a light sin. False worship is a scourge because it brings God's anger. But second, it brings God's destruction. Did you notice that in the passage? God will not tolerate false worship for very long. Now, he's merciful and patient and gracious and kind. He's long-suffering. He has a lot more patience than we do, so it looks like we're getting away with it. (laughs) But no, it brings God's destruction eventually because he cannot abide forever disobedient worship because we're corrupting his glory and stealing it from him. Remember that story in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3? Of course not. (laughs) No one's read Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 10, Aaron has two sons, Nadab and Abihu, who are priests. And they decided they're going to offer what the King James calls strange fire. They're going to offer unauthorized offerings. They had the idea of saying, let's go in the tent, let's go in the tabernacle, and let's offer a sacrifice, and let's do it in a way that God never told us to do. And do you remember the story? It says, fire came forth from the Lord and consumed them. Which tells you that they were, you know, if you want to talk about the physics of it, not mean like fire from heaven came down. It means that they weren't supposed to offer fire in this particular way with this particular combination of incense and whatever, and it was very combustible. And it exploded, and it killed them. And Leviticus tells us that was fire from the Lord, Do worship wrong, and it can be explosive in its consequences. And what does it say in response to this? What happens when Aaron's two sons are killed? What's the word from the Lord about this? Leviticus 10.3, Then Moses said to Aaron, This is that which the Lord said, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. They corrupted the worship of God. I will be treated as holy, and I will be glorified. And they did not do that, and that's why this has happened to them. When we offer God false worship, we invite his anger, and if we just persist in that for long enough, we invite his destruction. We see this in the New Testament as well. Neglecting what God says. And this is the key for this second point. 
What's the ultimate thing that, that, that leads us away from true worship? It's neglecting what God says. And why do we neglect what he says? Because we forget who he is. And we forget what he's done. And that's what our text says. Beware, in verse 12, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. When we forget who he is and we forget what he's done, worship becomes a light thing because his glory does not feel weighty to us. Worship doesn't feel weighty. It just feels like the thing we got to do because we're Christians and, you know, get it over with because lunch and football. This is what we're made for. You were created to glorify God. The purpose of your existence is to glorify him and to worship him. Amidst all the other purposes, this is the main one. This is why there's a church in the world today to worship God as he has commanded to be worshiped according to his word. It's the last thing we'll have left to do forever. (laughs) No more evangelism, no more outreach, no more service, no more feeding the needy in the new heavens and new earth. We get to enjoy the new heavens and new earth and enjoy each other. But at the end of the day, the last thing we have left to do is worship forever. And because his glory is infinite and bottomless and deep, it's not going to get boring because we're going to see more and more and more. And we get a chance to see a little bit here and now. Lord's Day morning is a great opportunity to meet with God, not in a pretty poetic way, but really, really meet with God. And if we get our eyes off of Christ and get our eyes off the gospel and start treating worship like it's something else, it's a scourge upon us. It invites his anger. It invites destruction. And it eclipses the beauty of Jesus. So we need our eyes opened again. And that takes us to our last point. We need reformation. They didn't just need it back then. We need it today. I need it today. Your pastor needs reformation in his own mind and heart and life. It's not just me pointing at you. I need it. You need it. We need it. We need a culture of true worship because it's a culture of true worship that brings about true reformation and revival. Last couple verses of our text, verses 7 to 9. Well, we'll start with verse 6, verses 6 to 9. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. What's he saying? You should take the word, write it on your heart, and then surround yourself with it. It should be in you, around you, outside you, upon you. Write it on your hand if you have to. Tattoo it here on your forehead if you have to do it. Write it on your gates. Write it on the posts, the frame of your house. Put the Word of God in you and around you. Surround yourself with it. Be engulfed in it, immersed in God's Word. Immerse yourself in the Word of God and then Teach it to your children. Tell it to your family. Kids and grandkids. Great-grandkids. Pass on a legacy 
of gospel worship. Pass on a legacy from one generation to the next and create a culture of worship that doesn't fizzle out when all of us in this room are no longer here. And a whole new congregation with a whole new pastor is sitting here at the Forks. A culture of worship. You, Christian, and I, we must know him and his word. You must be jealous for true worship yourself. God's passion for his worship and glory should be your passion for his worship and glory. And then you must teach your children and your children's children these things and pass on that zeal to the next generation. The reformation of worship, believe it or not, the reformation of worship will renew the church from the inside out and it will revolutionize whole cultures and countries. And you know it can because it did in the 16th century. And it still can, please God, today. We'll close with this passage from Deuteronomy 11, verses, starting in verse 18. It says, Therefore shall ye lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. And ye shall teach them your children, speaking of them when you sit down in your house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. And thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thine house and upon the gates. Just what we saw in chapter 6. So that, verse 21, that your days may be multiplied, and that the days of your children in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them as the days of heaven upon the earth. For if ye shall diligently keep all these commandments which I command you to do them, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to cleave unto him... Then will the Lord drive out all these nations from before you, and ye shall possess greater nations and mightier than yourselves. Every place whereon the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours. From the wilderness in Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even unto the uttermost sea shall be your coast. There shall no man be able to stand before you, for the Lord your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon all the land that ye shall tread upon, as he hath said unto you. These were earthly, temporal promises to the old covenant people of God. They are spiritual, eternal promises to us under the new covenant. But in our day, the church is not dominant in our land, the church is not powerful in the, in the world anymore. Who could say that the dread of the church is upon our enemies? That we tread upon the heights and we rule the day. <laughs> no, the church is buffeted and beaten back and weak and anemic and in some places dying off. We are not the dread of our enemies. We are the ones who are doing the dreading these days. But it does not have to remain so. Reformation is what we need. Reformation is what we have available if we do what God says we should do.
And it starts with soli, deo, gloria. All the glory goes to God. And that starts in my heart. And it starts in my mouth. And it starts in my approach to the Lord's day. And it starts in how I observe the Sabbath. And it starts in how I live like a Christian with my family. And it starts with how we go to church and what we do as a church. That's where it starts. We need a reformation. A reformation of true worship. A reformation that starts with each of us individually. A reformation that begins in our homes. We have biblical worship, or we can have all the biblical worship we want on Sundays. But it doesn't mean a thing if we don't, if we don't live it out the rest of the week. It won't mean a thing if you forget God the rest of the week. Do not forget the Lord your God. Keep your God focus, Bible focus, Christ focus on these five solas. We need a culture of worship to bring about a reformation. We want to build a culture where the church is an extension of the Christian home where you live out your faith in front of your family there where you bring your passion for God and for Scripture, your passion for Christ and for true worship, your passion for holiness, your passion for these five solas and these precious truths to church with you on the Lord's day. You don't leave them at the door when you go home on a Sunday. You bring them with you hot and burning coals from a holy fire that you have stoked throughout your week because you have been living and believing and praying and practicing these things as a private individual and with your family and with your fellow believers the rest of the week. A reformation in our day, church, is necessary and it's possible. It starts with small things. At least they seem small to us. It starts with small things in our, in our own lives, in our own congregation. But these ordinary means of grace come with extraordinary promise and power from on high. Let us be valiant and strong as believers and as a church and as Christian families. Let us resolve to learn and love and live these precious truths of the Reformation now and today and in front of an unbelieving but watching world. Let the light shine. Do not hide it, as Jesus said. Let us look to the one who is able to do far beyond all that we could ask or imagine and say, Soli Deo Gloria, bring about your reformation in our day and let it start with us. And we'll give you all praise and honor and glory. For you alone are worthy. Let's pray. Father, we do give you all glory today. And we thank you for a powerful word and a mighty gospel and a wonderful Savior and eternal truth that can set us free and change us, that can set us in motion to do those small means of grace, those little obediences that you call us to do in our daily lives, hour by hour, repenting of sin, trusting Christ, believing Scripture, praying diligently, serving one another, being the church, teaching our families, being Christians at home, being Christians at work, having that passion. Light the fire, we pray. Rekindle it. 
These colors are red up here today because we want the fire to fall again. And we ask you to do it in our day. And let it start with us right here at the Forks. Show us that there is a mighty God in heaven who walks in our midst and that we have a powerful gospel. Reform us, we pray. Conform us into the image of Christ and make your church and your kingdom dominant and strong, the dread of our enemies, that we might see your great commission fulfilled in all the nations. Bow the knee to Jesus, through whom we pray these things and give you all glory. Amen.